Well, it has been said, uh, the old adage, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That uh, a thing's beauty, a, a, a thing's uh, attractiveness uh, is, is relative. It, it depends upon the one who is looking upon it. Some people may see some things as beautiful. Others may see, look at the same thing and not see beauty in it. One man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Uh, the problem is that according to that adage, that uh, turn of phrase, all beauty is relative. There is no definite uh, 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 definition, that, to use that word redundantly, of what beauty is. Now, many philosophers and theologians have even made an attempt to try to define beauty more specifically. How can we have an objective definition of beauty? I don't know how, how successful many of those philosophers, ethicists, uh, theologians were at actually defining beauty in an objective sense. But I think we can say this. That looking at the Word of God, all of it, from Genesis through Revelation, and seeing God's overarching plan of redemption to rescue sinners from their sin through the death, burial, resurrection, trust in His own Son, Jesus, that that is a beautiful thing. The gospel is a beautiful thing. Now, believers, we inherently know this. We inherently know that the gospel is beautiful. In that sense, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But I think there's a particular beauty about salvation, even for non-believers. But for Christians today, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and look at the beauties of the gospel. We're going to see that, that seeing the particular different beauties of the gospel... That as we look at the different aspects of it, that as a result, we're going to understand that worship is a right response to salvation. We're going to hopefully be equipped with a state of mind this morning for enduring hardship and suffering with hope in our salvation. And, and Lord willing, we will turn our attention to the scriptures regularly so as to see the beauty of salvation in Christ all the more clearly. And all these things I think Peter encourages us to do in these verses. Let's do this together as uh, we're forming a new habit. Let's all stand together as you're able in honor of reading God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though it perishes, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father in heaven, we bless your name this morning and we thank you for the gift of salvation. 
We worship you for your goodness to us, your grace to us, that your grace and justice have been perfectly satisfied in Christ on the cross, your grace to us in providing a way of salvation, your justice in, in punishing your son in our place for the sins that we committed. God, what a wonderful mystery, what a wonderful beauty is the gospel. Help us, God, to worship you through your word this morning and through applying it to our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. There are three aspects, three beautiful aspects, I think, of the gospel that we want to look at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. The first is this, that present salvation realities inspire worship. Present salvation realities inspire worship. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you notice how Peter begins this first section, this first substantive section of his letter with a word of worship and praise to God? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of your salvations might say, praise be to uh, our, the, our, God, our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a simple way of simultaneously Peter himself worshiping God and also calling the church that he's writing to to do the same. And as a cause for worship, Peter points the attention of those hearing his letter, reading his letter, to specific ongoing realities of their salvation. The cause of Peter's worship is what he knows is going on in salvation right now. Peter worships God because, as verse 3 says, uh, he has saved us. He has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. The source of Christian worship is the new birth in Jesus Christ that is brought about by God. It is caused by God because of his mercy, because God loved us. Human, sinful human beings, and desired to give them away out of their sin, he sent his son to die, be raised again, so that we can be born again. You might be thinking this being caused us to be born again, thinking of that uh, event in John chapter 3 where Jesus and Nicodemus meet at night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' mind is blown. His brains are melting out of his ears, not knowing how it's possible for someone to be born again. And, and Jesus points him to the reality. He says, I'm not talking about being physically born again, but spiritually born again. The new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus about, the new birth that Peter is writing about here is spiritual. And so the beautiful and wonderful mystery of the gospel is this, church, that even though we are spiritually dead in our sin, God brings us to life by his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. That's how salvation works. People hear the gospel, they read the gospel, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to see its, its truth to convict us of our sin and to trust in Jesus. And in that process, we are born again. Our dead hearts are brought to life. The worship-worthy beauty of the gospel is that God makes dead sinners to be living worshipers through faith in Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. And in this new, and this new birth, Peter says, is into a living hope. 
right? God's, by God's mercy, according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Apart from Jesus, friends, we are without hope in this world. Apart from Jesus, we have no, no hope for anything because we're separated from God in our sins and we have only the dread of hell before us. That's the reality for every person who is not in Christ, who's not trusting Jesus. But we who know Christ praise God that in Jesus, the dread of hell has been transformed into a living hope and into eternal life because Jesus is risen from the dead. He died that we might not. He rose that we would also be raised. This is the beauty of trusting Jesus, church, that in making him Lord and King of our lives, we go from being spiritually dead and incapable of anything good on our own, being incapable of of pleasing God in, in anything of our own strength. We go from having no reasonable expectation that this life will ever get any better than it is now. We go from being that to being spiritually alive as a child of God, with all the hope of knowing God and being known by him, of loving God and being loved by him, of living now and being raised from the dead by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. What a transformation. So presently, right now, we worship because we are born again, because we are saved. Peter says, but also we worship because of the inheritance that is awaiting us. Just as we're born again to a living hope now, we're also born again to a heavenly inheritance, Peter writes. This inheritance is is the apostle's way of describing our eternal life and resurrection from the dead. The inheritance he's speaking of is eternal life in the presence of Jesus in the resurrection. And this life, this inheritance that awaits us is utterly unearthly. It's an amazing inheritance. Don't gloss over what Peter is saying here. Normally, when we think of an inheritance, what do we think of? We think of a financial or a material gift that's given to us, bequeathed to us when a parent or a grandparent dies, right? What was theirs, they give to us, and we inherit it as our own. The kind of, the the, the problem here is that with these sorts of financial, physical inheritances, is that they're temporary, they're perishable, they're corruptible. By their very nature, money, land, a trust fund, uh, inherited possessions won't last forever. And even, be, and even for the fact that because they come as a result of someone's death, th- those inheritances will serve as a reminder of death as long as we have them. As long as you have the land that was given to you by your grandparents, you will always be remembering that it was their land. And the reason it's not their land is because they're dead. but not the inheritance that is to us in Christ. What we have in Jesus is an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is otherworldly, and it comes to us not just by someone's death, but by Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. You don't earn, you don't receive, excuse me, salvation. You don't receive eternal life because Jesus died, but also because he rose from the dead particularly because he's not still dead. And so the inheritance we have reminds us not of death on an ongoing basis, but of life and of Christ's victory over sin and death and Satan for all time. What's worship worthy about this salvation is that God keeps it perfectly secure. Peter says, we've been born again to a living hope and inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
It's hard to see in, in our English translations, but that word kept is a, what scholars call a divine passive. That, that means this, that all of the action is being done by God toward a thing. The thing that is being acted upon, right, is salvation, is that inheritance of eternal life. And it's God who keeps it. It's God who secures it. It's God who's got it locked down and, and held safe, ready for us. And yet we see in the last half of verse 5 that the inheritance that is unfading and everlasting is held securely by God for you, Peter says, who by God's power are also being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christians, see this, understand this. The very God who holds eternal life ready for you in the resurrection is also holding, guarding, securing you right now moment by moment, through your faith in Jesus, as you look forward to the fullness of your salvation when you are raised from the dead to live forever in the presence of Christ. God holds our salvation and he holds us ready, waiting, uh, uh, prepared to receive it in the resurrection. Friends, who's, who, whose hands are better to be held in? Who, who else better to trust an inheritance with than with the God who has purchased it for us? Knowing this, that our present salvation realities, that we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that will never fade, that, it, that that inheritance is held, being presently held securely by God, even as we are being held secure presently by God through faith, our response to all of this should be what Peter's response to all of it was in verse 3, that we worship God because of his salvation for us. Worship God because he saved you. Peter preempts his passage here with worship. By saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter starts worshiping before he's even told the people why he's worshiping. His default reaction, his default response to salvation, and even to thinking about what he's going to say about salvation, is worship and praise of the God who has accomplished it for us. This is the very life and state of mind. It's the day-to-day -day mentality that all believers are saved for to day by day, moment by moment, living lives of worship to God who has saved us in Jesus. Friends, have you ever thought, given thought to the fact that in so many ways, you, you who are believers, you who are trusting Jesus, that you have been saved to sing? You have been saved to sing. That God has rescued you, rescued you from sin and from death and from the grave to give you real cause for celebration. How well are you doing at that? I don't, mean, I don't mean just like singing melodies and harmonies and things like that, but, but day by day as you reflect on the gospel, does your soul sing? Does your soul celebrate? Is your default position in life as a believer one of cheerful endurance and praise because of what you know that God has done? Or is it, is it a life that's marked by curmudgeonly grumbling and cynicism? Seriously. As Christians, we have every cosmic reason to be cheerful, to rejoice, to worship. Far be it from us then, church, to be a gloomy, curmudgeonly, cranky, cynical people. Friends, worship is not just a box to check on our Sunday morning schedule. It's the normal, commanded, encouraged response to the beauties of salvation that are being revealed to you today. 
This is precisely why we sing together on Sunday mornings. It's why we sing praise to God. It's why singing praises to God has been a practice of his people throughout history. There's an entire book of songs to God in the Old Testament. Did you know that? It's called Psalms. There's 150 of them. And one of them, Psalm 119, is the longest of all of them. And it's one song in 22 stanzas about the beauty of God's word. We sing because that's what God's people do. We worship because that's what God's people do. And certainly there are so many ways to worship God uh, because of our salvation other than singing, right? There are lots of ways to worship God. So, some worship God through expressions, through artistic expression, through, through painting, maybe through uh, writing poems or, or even just uh, kind of free verse prose. There are people who, who worship with their hands by the things that, that they create, giving glory to God who is the great creator and has given us ability to create. There are endless ways to worship in this life, but few means of worship, few manners of worship engage our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength like singing songs of God's wonderful work in the gospel. Few other ways of worship cause us to think about things that we're saying right? Worshiping God with our mind as we look at words that we're going to sing, thinking about the the gospel realities that those songs are conveying. A few other means of of, of worship engage our heart quite like singing, because we we read those words, we think about those words, and and we're reminded that those words uh, have a connection to what has happened in our soul. And And then we worship with our strength by raising our voices, lifting our voices, Singing those words that mean something to us spiritually, those words that reflect what God has done inside of us internally and what God has done cosmically. Few ways of worship engage all aspects of humanity quite like singing. If I might just take a point of personal privilege here, I would say to you, First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, make it a point every week when we gather like this on Sunday morning to engage your mind and your heart and your voice in singing to God. Every week, make it a discipline, if you must, to sing the songs that we sing together. We don't choose these songs by accident or by happenstance. We, we choose songs regularly each week that reflect, that, that help us to, to focus our minds on the things that we're going to be seeing in God's word and help us praise even preemptively because of the things that we're going to see in God's word. I would encourage you to see how the songs that we sing, even though they're in different arrangements and from different eras in the church and throughout church history, are all aimed equally at worshiping God for who he is and for how he saved us. So sing them all. Sing them thoughtfully. Sing them sincerely because there are few things more encouraging to your soul and to mine and few things more glorifying to God than when all of the saints, all of the redeemed raise their voices in praise to lift high the name of Jesus. Sing when we sing. I don't care if you you can carry a tune in a bucket. Lord knows I can't. Just sing. Make a joyful noise. If you can't carry a pitch, that's all right. Sing anyway. It's good for your soul. It's good for the church. And it, and it tells the world and those who might be here that, that are not believers, right, that, that the things that we believe cause us to be cheerful, cause us joy, and that we, we enjoy reminding one another of those things in song. Our present salvation realities 
inspire our our worship, lead to worship. But also in verses 6 through 9, see that Peter is pointing to the fact that future salvation certainties produce joy through hardship. Future salvation certainties produce joy even in the midst of hardship. In verse 6, we read this. Peter says, in this, here he's talking about the salvation that is to be fully revealed in the resurrection. In this you rejoice, though now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. My guess is if you were, able, if you were to take an informal poll of your friends and coworkers, that you would likely expect most of them to say something along the lines that, that suffering and joy go together like oil and water. Suffering and joy play well together like the Cowboys and the 49ers. Suffering and joy coordinate like polka dots and pinstripes. That is to say they don't. It would seem natural and normal to not experience a high degree of happiness or satisfaction in life in the midst of suffering or hardship. That's normal. That's what the world says. Suffering is not good, so avoid it. But here in Scripture... Peter shows us that our very salvation is the thing that, that not, not only enables us to endure hardship, but to have joy in the midst of suffering and difficulty. How can this be? How can it be that salvation causes us to be joyful when we're experiencing hard things in life? It's because our salvation in Christ gives us a better lens through which to view suffering. Knowing Jesus, being saved by Jesus, helps us to see suffering for what it really is. So first of all, our salvation helps us to see the result of suffering. Salvation as our lens, the, things, the thing through which we look at, at the world around us, helps us to see the result of suffering. In verse 7, Peter continues saying that uh, believers can rejoice in suffering because suffering produces a refined faith that will result in, the, in, in praise, glory, and honor of Jesus when he returns. Here, Peter is illustrating the relationship between Christian suffering and its results to the process of gold being refined by extreme heat. He says, So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Fire is a really good analogy for suffering, hardship hurts. Illness is painful. Losing a job can be terribly disorienting. Relational conflicts trouble our hearts. Church suffering stings. And Peter's not shying away from this. He, he, he likens suffering to fire. But I would remind us that Peter has in mind, uh, Peter has in mind suffering that, that comes as a result of being a follower of Jesus in a world where that's a strange thing to do. We saw that a little bit last week. Peter's writing to a church that is about to begin real social persecution and hardship because of their faith in Jesus. We don't, certain, we, we don't face quite that kind of persecution in America today, though some of our brothers and sisters around the world do. But we do sometimes face hardships and trials that are not always directly caused by our faith. Sometimes our suffering is a result of our own sinful actions and choices and the consequences of sinful things that we do. Sometimes suffering is a result of other people's sin toward us, against us. And sometimes hardship and suffering is just by nature of the fact that sin has broken the way that this world works. People get cancer and appendicitis and migraines and have heart attacks because our world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But in every case, 
Suffering and difficulty for the Christian is a tool in God's gracious hand to be used on the life of the disciple of Jesus, to shape him, to fashion him, to form him or her into the image of Jesus. God takes our lives with our faith in Jesus and like a raw nugget of gold, he places us in the crucible of suffering to melt our hearts so that he might refine us, so he might refine the beauty of our faith in Christ and so that our faith in Jesus would be unhindered by the dross of materialism and worldliness and and selfishness and disobedience. Church, God allows, sometimes God even causes and brings hardship in your life so that you might set your focus on what is ultimate. All this God does that you might not place your faith or hope in such petty things, such temporary things as money and people and a, and a, and a, a robust 401k. What God wants in your life is what's most valuable to you and what is most glorifying to him. And those two things are not at odds. The thing that is most valuable to you and most glorifying to God is that all of your life is given in faith and trust to Jesus. That glorifies him most. And friend, that is the most valuable thing to you. This is what suffering does. Suffering reminds us of our inability to control circumstances. It reminds us, of, uh, of the one, it points us to the one who has all control of all things. Suffering destroys the idols of comfort in our life so that the God who gives real peace might be seen all the more clearly. As our faith and trust in Jesus are through hardship, are honed and sharpened and deepened, we find cause then for exceeding joy in suffering as we look to Christ's return. We can rejoice in suffering because we know what is ahead. Right? A more genuine faith, a more sure faith, a salvation that is waiting for us. So we look at suffering and we know that God is doing things in our lives through it. Though it hurts, though it stings, though sometimes it's hard, we see the end result and we persevere. We press on in faith, in Christ, because we know what is ahead. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Here Peter says, though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, uh, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These believers to whom Peter is writing this letter are of the generation of believers. He's writing around 62, 63 AD. It's about 30 years or so after Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension. These are among the first generation of believers who were not eyewitnesses to Jesus. Their experience of Jesus was only through the preaching of the disciples and the study of the Hebrew scriptures. And yet, though they had not seen Jesus face to face because of what they've heard and because of what they've read and how the Holy Spirit has convicted them, they, like Peter, both love Jesus and believe in him, even having not seen him. And as their love and faith are concentrated through suffering, through hardship, they respond with joy that Peter says is literally two great four words. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I have words for the kind of rejoicing that results in the life of the Christian through suffering. Their joy in Christ leaves them speechless. And this unspeakable joy we see is centered on the person of Jesus, the person of Christ, because they have trusted him through suffering. In the midst of suffering, they have held fast to Christ and they're looking forward to his return. That's the thing in which we rejoice. 
Enduring suffering then with a joyful heart is possible for the Christian because it deepens and it purifies our faith in the one who is returning and it sets our eyes on what is coming. It sets our eyes and our focus on the day when we will, we will no longer not see Jesus and believe, but when we will see Jesus face to face, when our faith will become sight. That's the finish line that we persevere and endure for. It's what God has prepared for us. And so we hold fast to Jesus, regardless of the hardships of this life, knowing that God is using hardship to make us look more like Christ, so we'll be all the more ready to embrace him when that day comes. Now, the various religions of the world have all dealt with suffering in different ways. They've all defined suffering in different ways and given different responses, different solutions to the problem of suffering. Our sincere Buddhist friends would say that all of life is suffering. All of it, the whole of it. And suffering is a product of attachment to material things. Hindus would say that suffering is punishment of the universe upon those who were immoral or evil in previous lives. They're living out their, their, their punishment for their previous life in this, in this reincarnated life. And the reason your life is so bad now is because you are a really bad person in a previous one. The religion of Islam would say that all things, good or bad, or all from the hand of Allah. Some suffering is by evil spiritual forces, but Allah uses these to test his followers. In either case, though, one can only hope that in the end, Allah will be merciful to them. There is in Islam no hope for deliverance from suffering. Just a, no, no sincere hope, no, no concrete hope. Only a sort of hope in an ethereal sense that maybe God will be merciful, but no one can know for sure. Our atheist friends and coworkers would say something along the lines that suffering is relative at best. In the course of blind, indifferent, evolutionary progress, suffering is only bad for the species who cannot endure it long enough to pass along their genes. Your life means nothing in a cosmic sense, says the atheist. There is no soul, and suffering is just part of the rhythm of the cosmos. Every world religion has tried to deal with this aspect of suffering. But Christianity, biblical Christianity, explains suffering quite differently. From the Bible, we understand that all of suffering is a function, it's a product of sin in the world. By sin, we mean individual persons' rebellion against God, his authority in their life, his desire, his design for our lives. We read in Genesis chapter 3 that all of creation is broken because of sin. And we see through the pages of both the Old and New Testaments that sin causes pain for our own lives. Sin causes pain in the lives of others. In the biblical worldview, suffering is not part of God's original design for creation and humanity. But creation and humanity suffer because of mankind's sin. Want to know why there's pain in the world? You want to know why there's suffering in the world? Look at your own life and look at the sin of every other human being that has ever lived. We've done it. We've created it. Now, Buddhists will say that to escape suffering, one needs to detach himself from worldly desires. You want to escape suffering? Just realize that worldly things are, are kind of an illusion and you gain nothing from them. You lose nothing. So, so detach yourself from worldly things. Become more spiritual and then you can escape suffering. Hindus would say that you've got to do good in this life. Acts, works of karma, right? In hopes to attaining in reincarnation, a life with less suffering. 
make up for some of the bad things in a previous life by doing some good things now so that hopefully your next life will be a little bit better. The Muslim may say that you need to do good works and repentance so that God may give you peace from your suffering. Atheists have no hope for dealing with suffering. But the Bible shows us, in contrast to Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and even the atheist worldview, the Bible shows us that we are the cause of our suffering. And on our own, we cannot hope to be free from it. Rather, in God's great love for humanity, he sent his son Jesus to be born a man named Jesus. Right? God in the flesh who would live a sinless life. And though Jesus had no sin and he did not deserve to suffer, he still made himself acquainted with suffering so that he might show us that God is not far off from his people. But that God sees us. He knows our suffering One of my favorite passages in in all of Scripture, my favorite book in all of Scripture is Exodus. And 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 is, 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 is fighting for contention as my favorite passage in all of Scripture. But one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt, speaking of Israel's slavery in Egypt, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's a picture of a suffering people. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and look at at who God is. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the people of Israel and he knew. God in Christ is not far from our suffering, but deeply, intimately acquainted with it. Jesus would die a brutal death on a cross, a death that in his sinlessness he did not deserve, but he died in our place so that the most severe consequence of suffering, which is separation, your separation from the holy and good God who made you, Jesus died on the cross, suffering there in your place so that you might be cured of that problem. And Jesus, though he died, did not remain dead. He rose again from the dead to show that sin and death could not hold him and that each one who trusts in Jesus, who makes him Lord of their life, would be right with God. Our sins forgiven, our suffering given purpose, our life made whole. And for the life of the believer after faith, for the one who trusts in Jesus, God then does not seek to free us from suffering in this life, but to give it a purpose that it might be used to sharpen our faith and our hope in Jesus who suffered for us. So then church, don't fall victim to inadequate views of suffering from the thoughts of men and from their religions. Instead, view your suffering through the true lens of Scripture. View your suffering through the lens of future glory, of what is awaiting you because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in you even now. Know that unlike Buddhism or Hinduism, hardship, suffering is not a thing to escape, but a thing to endure with hope and faith in Jesus. Because of hope and faith in Jesus. For greater hope and faith in Jesus. Know that unlike these two world religions, there is a known finish line. There's a known end to suffering and hardship because Jesus is returning to gather to himself all of those who trust in him and to usher them into eternal life where there will be no more suffering. No, Christian, 
that unlike Islam, you can have confidence that suffering in this life is not because God is angry with you, but because he loves you. And he's using the heat of suffering to sculpt your faith and your life into the image of his son. Future glory gives us great reason to endure suffering with hope. The beauty of salvation is that in hardship, this is what is beautiful about salvation, that in hardship you can look to the finish line of your faith, the salvation of your soul, and rejoice in what God is doing even in your most difficult days. That's why the gospel's beautiful. But then thirdly, in verses 10 through 12, we see that heavenly beauties of salvation inspire wonder. Present, present realities of our salvation lead us to worship. Future certainties of our salvation give us cause for joy even in the middle of suffering. But heavenly beauties of salvation inspire wonder, inspire awe. In these final two verses, Peter shares with his readers what God has been doing to reveal salvation to the world and most especially to those who would trust in Christ. He says, concerning this salvation... The salvation that is working presently in you, that God is preparing you for through suffering. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully as to what the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's a mouthful. What is Peter saying here? Briefly, in short, he's saying that the salvation that he's been writing about was a thing uh, it was a concept, was a, a, an idea of God, a plan of God revealed by the Holy Spirit of God to Israel's prophets through words and revelation that we can read in the Old Testament. Peter's talking about our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Those are the things that the prophets prophesied. Here, I think it's likely that Peter is, is thinking of personally uh, passages like Isaiah 52 and 53, the promise of a servant of God who would suffer for the sins of man. But we can also assume, I think, that he's including the earliest prophecies of a coming Savior, like Genesis 3, and the promise of one who will come, a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, or of Deuteronomy chapter 18, when God promises a prophet like that, like that of Moses who will come for his people with the words of God in his mouth, or even like that of a king to reign forever on David's throne as God promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. The prophets of old, the Hebrew prophets, worked hard, Peter says, to see who might come to fulfill these promises. They searched and inquired diligent, diligently, diligently, wondering what time, what place, who is it that would fulfill all of these things that God is revealing to them. But as verse 12 says, God revealed to them, to the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Daniel, Daniel um, Joel, Ezekiel, so on, God revealed to them that their prophecies were not actually for them and that their prophecies were not actually for Israel at the time of the prophet's writing, but instead for a group who would come later, for a people who would be the recipients of the promise at a later time, that is, for the church. Peter says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever given thought to the fact that the, the prophets in the Old Testament weren't necessarily prophesying about the coming Messiah for their own immediate audience? Although they were, but ultimately those promises were going to be for us because we would be the recipients of the promised Messiah. We'd be the ones who would receive him by faith. 
Those that lived before Christ and didn't see his coming, they only had the hope of the Messiah to place faith in. But we have the Messiah revealed in flesh, preached to us through the word. The grace that the prophets prophesied in the coming Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus. And the fulfillment of all that Christ accomplished was declared to the church by the apostles who were eyewitnesses to Jesus and whose eyes were opened to understand that he was the promised serpent crusher, the prophet like Moses, the king greater than David who reigns forever. And now you, church, you, First Baptist Church West Albuquerque, you, Christian, are a recipient. You are the very ones who are experiencing the grace that God has given through Jesus. The promises that the prophets hoped for are realities for you. Let me say that again. The promises that the prophets hoped for, looked forward to, are realized and realities for you. That's better. And by the way, it gets better. Look at the last, look at, this is, so this is the phrase I told the group on Wednesday night. This is the, 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 the phrase that has just been like messing with me all week long, messing with me in a good way. At the end of verse 12, after Peter summarizes all of these, these uh, gospel realities, present gospel realities, future gospel certainties, heaven real, heavenly uh, realities, uh, heavenly beauties of the gospel, he says this, these are things into which angels long to look. So as to say, oh, by the way, church, these gospel realities are things that angels are enamored with. Do you, do you see? Let that sink in a minute. Do you see what Peter's saying? Do you really see what Peter's saying? Angels, these mighty spiritual beings that God has created to serve him and to work his will, who live moment by moment in the presence of God, ever singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These angels who were witnesses to the creation of the universe, who saw the fall of man into sin, who watched as God declared and fulfilled his promise to send a savior. These angels who have seen God's divine rescue plan play out from front row, heavenly seats, even they stand in awe and wonder of the gospel. Even they desire to plumb the depths of God's love and grace and justice all perfected in Jesus. And they're only witnesses to it. All they get to do is watch it happen. Christian, you're more than a witness to God's salvation. You're the one who's experienced it. You're the one who's received it. You're the one that has been brought from death to life by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. That's you. You were dead and now you're alive. You're not just watching this happen in other people's lives. You've experienced it. Do you know how truly awesome this God is? Do you see the transformation, the spiritual transformation in your life through the good news of Jesus for what it really is? Have you really tasted the sweetness of God's unmerited love in your life? Are you sincerely striving to see and to know the heavenly beauties of salvation with awe and wonder at the fact that God has plucked you from the grip of sin and death and hell and by trust in his son has made you holy, righteous, a child of his own, a citizen of heaven? Do me a favor, take two fingers like this, okay, and put them right here on your wrist. Check your pulse. And know that if the, mine's beating a little bit faster than it normally does. 
Know this, Christian. If the cosmic miracle of your salvation doesn't get your heart beating a little bit faster this morning, a little bit faster every time that you review and look at the heavenly beauties of salvation, there's a good chance your dead heart was never beating to begin with. I'm not joking. The joy of the gospel makes our hearts beat spiritually, yes, with life, but also physically. It makes it beat faster. There's joy, there's excitement. There are tears of happiness that come as we reflect on and review these gospel realities. Because the eternal and infinite heavenly beauties of salvation inspire wonder and awe among the angels that God has created and in the prophets who delivered these promises of grace and in the apostles who faithfully declared the gospel in the Roman Empire and through God's word to us today, Christian, church, you do well, I do well, we do well together to read our Bible with Christ-centered expectancy and adoration. We do well. It is good to read your Bible looking for the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah in Jesus and adoring God, worshiping God, standing in awe because of the things that he does. On the path, look, the path to the promised Savior is laid all through Scripture, Old Testament and New. It's available for all whom God will give eyes to see. So I'll ask you, parents, how's your Bible reading with your children going? Do you find yourself in awe of God's wonderful work of salvation in books like Judges and Samuel when you read them as a family? Are you setting an example for your children to worship God as a response to his word? Or do you merely find yourself making moral lessons out of the text for your kids? Obey better. Don't be like Samson. Trust God more. Act better. Don't be like these people. Those are the most pithy and often pointless, unhelpful things to come away from the text with. What we need more from the text, from God's word, is an understanding of who God is, what he has done. Yes, he does give us instruction for how to live our lives. He does help us to, to know how to walk in step with his will and his design. But none of that's possible apart from Jesus. So parents, when you're reading your Bible with your children, are you pointing your children to Jesus as you read the Bible? Are you pointing them to the wonder and awe of the gospel as you read the Bible? If you need help, I would recommend to you the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, which is uh, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, wonderful illustrations showing how many of these uh, you know, beloved and, and uh, uh, often reviewed passages of Scripture stories from the Bible are actually pointing to Jesus. It's a great place to start if you need a tool for, for uh, knowing better how to, to get to Jesus in the Scripture with your children. Not just parents. Friend, you who are a believer... Do you find yourself going to God's word daily, regularly, or in times of crisis for a Twitter-length soundbite on how to fix your envy or your lust or your anger? Christian, you're struggling with sin and you need help from God. Do you just flip to one verse and read it and try to memorize it and kill your sin with that one verse? I'm telling you, as one who has tried to do it, you can't. It doesn't last long enough. You need more than five words to kill your sin. You need the whole counsel of God's word. 
Are you daily wading through the waters of the word that you might better know the Savior to whom it points us? Trust him more today. And through your crises, reflect on his, on his perfect obedience, Christ's perfect obedience to God, a little more clearly today than yesterday. Are you looking more like Jesus today, more like Jesus today than you did yesterday, with the hopes of looking more like Jesus more tomorrow than you do today as you work through, as you wade through the whole counsel of God's word? This book that we call the Bible, it's really more than a book, it's a library. So much more than a self-help guide. Jesus is so much more than a life coach. This book is God's own word to us, his perfect word to us. It is truth from his own lips that tells us that though we cannot help ourselves, he has taken care of the problem of sin for us. In his word, he shows for all to see the resplendent jewel of the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus. And he points us on every page to his son, who's not our life coach, but our savior. Beauty of the gospel is this, that it it shows us that the present salvation, our present salvation uh, uh, realities are cause for worship. The beauty of the gospel is that it's, it's future uh, uh, certainties, the things that are certain for us through faith in Christ give us cause for joy and suffering. And then the heavenly beauties of the gospel inspire awe and wonder in us. Church, if beauty is really in the eye of the beholder, with our eyes as our own judges, what will they say about how beautiful we find the gospel? Let's pray.